Good morning. I can't begin to tell you how sincere I felt um, John's prayer this morning. Um, I'm so thankful for Jeremy to be here. Um, I went two rivers, and I know that that won't go to his head. Um, he is. Uh, um, but also, the how um, incredible a friend Two Rivers has been uh, to me and my family over the last 14 years. I can't begin to explain that. But um, it's a pleasure to be with you. My wife uh, and I often... Um, well, mainly my wife sends me articles all throughout the day as she reads them. Um, and it's usually about like um, sentient robots and they, you know that they're just around the corner or, or cloning is already here or you know any number of really strange things. But then every once in a while, I send her an article that I read. Um, she's a much more voracious reader than I am. But mine are always sad. <laughs> um, I don't know, but I don't know what that says about me. But um, I do remember in around 2015, I read an article uh, about a mentally handicapped man in Conway, South Carolina, who had been enslaved by two restaurant owners, Conway, just up, you know, Myrtle Beach. Uh, He had been enslaved by uh, two restaurant owners for five years. He had been forced to labor 16 hours a day, seven days a week even on occasions when the man was sick and weakened, uh, to the point where he had to be carried home and physically fed drink and food. And they would regularly move the man into the freezer or the back office where they would physically abuse him by putting uh, tongs and hot grease and putting the tongs to his neck until he could be heard crying like a child. And he was isolated and prevented from seeing his family through a host of lies and deceit. He was forced to live in subhuman conditions in a cockroach-infested apartment behind the restaurant and beaten with belt buckles, a spatula, and fists. I didn't think that that still happened today. And I didn't think that that happened an hour and 45 minutes from here. You know, in the over the last 50 or so years in Western thought and worldview, there was no room for evil. Instead, everything had a natural cause and a scientific reason. So, or as later developed, we decided there, there was no truth at all. So no sense of right or wrong. And we don't like to use the word evil because it's moral. And we'd like to chalk everything up to, say, poor sociological and psychological adjustment. A friend recently reminded me about the book Silence of the Lambs, where Hannibal Lecter, one of literature's sort of greatest villains, responds to FBI agent uh, Clarice Starling uh, when she questions about his history. And he says, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say that I'm evil? And I remember thinking, this is truly evil. 
However, I'd suggest that the position that there is no good or evil is beginning to sort of lose its foothold on our culture, or at the very least in, on college campuses, which means the change in culture will be soon enough. And it seems that the UBU thing that Jeremy mentioned the other week and, th and then was like, oh, you know, that was a couple years ago. Who knows what it is now? You know, the UBU, you know, there is no truth, be your own truth um, sort of thinking only works when you're living in the comfort of suburbia. But I think that in light of the increase of the use of cell phones, police brutality, abuse of power, and racial inequality that's been able to be seen, those things have shrunk the distance that we've needed in order to remain relativistic or amoral. And so my college students and I think probably the rest of society have begun to believe once again that evil does in fact, in fact exist. And so um, if you're still not convinced that evil exists, let me ask you a few questions that I once heard from a philosopher slash theologian. While Christians are often thought of as being overly simplistic and making things out to be good or evil, consider that maybe you're being overly simplistic by, uh, by not considering the depth and the complexity of evil, that there's more to it than just science and environment. Secondly, he said, consider that maybe you're being culturally narrow because the rest of the world believes that there's good and evil. And then third, do you believe in God? Because if you believe in, a, in good supernatural beings, why can't there be bad? And so we'll see today, the story of redemption is a cosmic battle. It is a cosmic battle between good and evil. And so after the fall of mankind into sin that we've studied over the last several weeks, who does God turn to first? in order to curse. Well, he curses Satan. So would you stand with me for the reading of Scripture? We're looking at Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. <clears throat> so, in verse 14, as Jeremy mentioned last week, God tells the serpent that he shall eat dust all the days of his life. And this is certainly has some re reference to, you know, a snake slithering on the ground as that was the form Satan took in, on that moment. But the eating of dust is really a biblical metaphor for humiliation, for being shamed. Listen to Micah chapter 7, verses 16 and 17. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. So with this declaration of the humility for Satan, the cosmic battle between good and evil, it's on, right? It's like God 
throws down an insult, and it's like, what you got? So in Genesis 3.15, it's often called by biblical scholars the Proto-Evangelium. And that's what Jeremy emailed me uh, to preach on. Now, Proto-Evangelium is not an advanced aging cream that Christian moms sell each other in some sort of pyramid scheme, right? Um, Nor is it some disgusting thing out of one of the Ghostbuster movies. Proto-Evangelium simply means proto, the first, and evangelium, good news, or the first gospel. And today we're going to look at two aspects of the first good news. One, that it's God's declaration of war. And two, that it's God's promise of restoration. It's God's declaration of war, and it's God's promise of restoration. All right, so in God's declaration of war, what do we see? It's a cosmic battle, God versus Satan. But wait. Wouldn't it be God versus man if man has fallen into sin, right? Why is it so significant that God turns to Satan first? Well, Adam has committed the human race to enmity toward God. He has started hostility toward God by turning away from him. And enmity means deep-rooted hatred. You're going to hear that a couple times. Enmity means deep-rooted hatred. But God rather than declaring his hostility back toward man or creation, instead turns it toward Satan, the source of sin and death. What we will see in Genesis 3, 14 and 15 is that the curse of the serpent is the beginning of man's redemption. God's grace towards mankind. And in the last couple weeks, we saw that after man sinned, rather than simply abandoning man, God came towards him, right? And the beauty of that. And he engaged him. And now we'll see God offer grace to mankind through this curse, strangely. So, um, after the promise of humiliation in verse 15, God adds that he will put enmity between Satan and the woman. Between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. So, what is enmity again? Deep-rooted hatred. Why is this grace to us? Well, first, it means that mankind as a race will never be totally given over to Satan, to serving him. There will always be a rebel alliance of sorts that's standing against him. And that's encouraging, right? The word seed here means offspring. And you may uh, say, I understand who the women's offspring are, but who are Satan's offspring? And as we'll see next week, Adam's sin leads to a sorry picture. God even warns them in Genesis 4 that sin is crouching at their door. And Cain's murder, Cain murders his brother, Abel. Uh, what's that? Spoiler alert. Um, and is divinely punished for not being his brother's keeper. And so there seems to be two flame, family lines where there's the faithful seed which is Seth's line after that. And so when we get to Genesis 6 with the flood, it's caused by the intermarriage of what are called the sons of God um, with the women of man. And many theologians believe that the faithful seed, the Sethites, are being threatened here by accommodation and assimilation by the godless seed. 
the seed of Cain. But when we step back, the larger picture makes it very clear. Who is the seed of Satan? Who are the enemies of God? 1 John 3, verses 7 and 8 says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous, meaning Jesus. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And then in James 4, it says, chapter 4, verse 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And then Romans chapter 8, verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So what's the conclusion? The seed of Satan are all people who are not faithful worshipers of God. They are ruled by the world, the flesh, and the devil. They are the seed of Satan. Now, why is this important? It's important because God and Satan both lay claim to all things. God and Satan both lay claim to all things. There is no neutral territory. Think of the examples of antithesis throughout Scripture. Kingdom of God versus the kingdom of sin and death. Faith versus idolatry. Life versus death. God versus mammon. The broad way versus the narrow. The spirit of God versus the flesh. The wheat and the weeds. The sheep and the goat. Do you get the idea? One theologian rightly commented that there is no aspect of life that is uncontested. There is no distinction between sacred and secular. There's no distinction between moral and amoral. We are truly in a cosmic battle. So, what do we see in Genesis 3.15, the second half? It says, God says to Satan, regarding his curse, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So who is the he that shall bruise Satan's head? Why, it's the seed of Eid. And what does it mean to bruise or crush Satan's head? Well, the answer is certainly to, to defeat him, to kill him. But what does it mean that Satan will bruise Eve's seed's heel? Well, have you ever had a bruised heel? Uh, it's awful. I was on a travel soccer team in seventh grade, and we were playing a weekend of games, um, and I had a bruised heel. And it's totally nagging. It's irritating. It limits your effectiveness. Like my dad put tons of pads underneath. It did no good. It was really frustrating, and it serves as a, as a distraction. But did that bruised heel kill me? No. So this is good news, Right? Who is Eve's seed, which, by the way, is singular in Genesis 3.15, that will defeat Satan? We know him as Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, meaning the children of God, share in flesh and blood, he himself, being Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil, 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That is a huge couple of verses, and I can't even begin to get through them all. It would be a whole sermon, but it says, I thought Jesus died, right? Not Satan. So it seems more like Jesus bruised Satan's heel, maybe, while he was alive, and Satan bruised Jesus' head because he killed him. Well, actually, Jesus is becoming a man and dying in our place. While it looked like a victory for Satan, it actually delivered us from the curse of death. It's what we call substitutionary atonement. So when Jesus is resurrected from the dead, we saw that Satan was effectively defeated. He can't win. So, wait, but you might say, Satan's still around. How did, you know, how then is he defeated? You know, an often used illustration to explain this is the ending of World War II. And on D-Day, when the Allied troops attacked the beaches of Normandy and overthrew the German forces, they effectively won World War II. However, they had to continue forward and fight out skirmishes with remaining remnants of the Axis powers uh, before taking control over all of Europe. So World War II officially ended on VE Day. But it effectively was won on D-Day. Jesus' death and resurrection serve as the D-Day of God's story of redeeming creation from the grips of Satan. And Christ's return, as is shown in Revelation 20, is when he will destroy Satan and all those deceived by him. And that will serve as VE Day. So what about now? Well, we get to partake in the skirmishes as we move forward towards victory. Romans 16, verses 17 through 20 says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk, oh man, I've seen so much of that. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent and to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We get to take part, you know, take part in this. And so he finishes, with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Verse 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And so we are the ones taking part in the defeat of Satan as we fight these skirmishes against him. But what is the church challenged by? Well, in the context of Romans 16, the church being, is being plagued by false teachers. So how does this relate to Genesis 3.15? Well, Paul looked at the world through the lens of Genesis 3.15. One was either a seed of the serpent or the seed of the woman. And Paul recognizes that those who were causing division in the ch at the church of Rome through false doctrine, he understood that they were the seed of the serpent. And so how do we begin to arm ourselves for these skirmishes? Well, we'll look at that in a little bit. 
But not only does the first good news that, you know, say that God declared war on Satan, but it's also that it's God's promise of restoration. How is restoration accomplished? How is creation restored? Well, the defeat of Satan would be the defeat of the source of all sin. And thus creation's corruption from sin. Creation would thus be restored to its original state. So see what Paul says in Romans 8, 20 through 23. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been famously known as groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So all creation, including mankind, is groaning as we wait for full restoration. But this brings up the question, wait, wait, wait. How is man restored? I mean, how can the seed of the woman crush the serpent's head? I mean, the character of God says, yes, he is loving, but he's also just. So justice has to be fulfilled. If a covenant is broken for it to be restored, somebody has to fill its obligations. So because man has broken the covenant for his loving bond to be restored with God, a seed, just a normal man of of the woman, can't somehow fulfill all the covenant obligations himself. And this is why Jesus, God, had to become a man and carry the burden of the covenant himself. And that's why in Hebrews 2, verses 10 and 11, speaks of this reasoning. For it was fitting, like it made sense, that he for, for whom and by whom all things exist, God, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, so like Jesus the sanctifier and us who are sanctified, all have one source. And that's why Jesus isn't ashamed to call them brothers. I think we often understand God as Father. But I think that through much of my life, I have lived lived out of shame, of a sense that of guilt that God forgives me, that Jesus accomplished the work, but he's got his arms folded. And he's frustrated with me. But Jesus is our older brother who's not ashamed of us. The curse of the fall was solved by the curse of Satan by way of the curse that was placed on Jesus. The curse of the fall was solved by the curse of Satan by way of the curse that was placed on Jesus. One theologian said, when Jesus prays the prayer in the garden, 
when he suffers the pains of crucifixion, when he cries out in dereliction, he dies and is buried, then and only then can we really appreciate the full character of sin. Adam's sin and ours has meant nothing less than the death of the Son of God. So here we see a love that is beyond all loves. This summer, um, as I partook of coronacation, uh, which is what I like to call it, uh, there were a number of students who stayed in town, about 12 or 13, and so I, would meet, I had the opportunity to meet with them just about every week, um, sitting under, you know, downtown under a, uh, uh, like a church's overhead, and, um, and I bought two camping chairs, and we would sit seven feet apart, just another foot, just for safety. And um, I had them read all kinds of articles and books, and we would meet each week and talk about them. And there was one girl who really struggled with needing the love of men, and she really struggled um, with seeing how heartbreaking her sin was to God. And so we were reading this, this one uh, book, and we got to the end of this one chapter, and it said, uh, it quoted Jesus in the garden uh, when he said, Father, take this cup from me. And she was like, wait, Jesus didn't want to die? So he was a sinner too. He wasn't obedient. And I said, do you know what he said next? She's like, what? And I said, but not my will, but yours. And immediately, the scales dropped from her eyes. And I knew that that was the day that she began to follow Jesus. She saw the depth of her sin, and she saw the great heart of Jesus. Loving her more than the pain. But, you know, not only do I think we need to see uh, justice demanded, you know, Jesus atoning for our sin. But I, it might, it's easily said, whoa, whoa, okay, D- Danny, that's, this is Genesis 3.15. How, do you, how can you say that's Jesus? What was the original meaning? They, surely they didn't, you know, mean to talk about Jesus. Um, how was the woman's seed bruising the servant heel somehow Jesus' sacrificial death? That seems like a huge leap. Well, the original author's intent. Let's think about that. For Moses and the Exodus community, the seed, of, of Genesis, the seed promise of Genesis 3.15 was speaking about a godly line coming from Eve that would be graced by God to be a faithful mediator of the covenant. But some events in the history of redemption bear multiple references and take on expanded meanings. This is a big word that we call census plenier. But biblical writers only knew or understood so much of revelation given to them. The understanding of the seed being godly, someone that would defeat Satan, it grew deeper later when Abraham, who was obviously in the line of Adam's seed, was promised that from the seed of he and Sarah, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And King David, who was in the line of the seed of Abraham, when God made a covenant with him, he was promised that his seed would sit on the throne forever. 
all nations, and thus all people, being blessed has to involve Satan being defeated. And there no longer being a battle between God and Satan's kingdoms. Additionally, the eternal king who reigned in peace would have to mean that sin was defeated and mankind freed from the bondage to sin. And so the progression of the story of redemption, it doesn't obscure or render irrelevant the first good news of Satan's demise in Genesis 3.15, but it only elucidates and confirms it all the more. And that's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.20, which is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, if you write down anything today, write down this verse. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. All God's promises are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, Seth, Isaac, Solomon, right? The direct seeds of Adam, Abraham, and David. None of them saw the complete fulfillment of God's promises about their father's seed. But Jesus, in the line of all three, did. Of all the apologetics for Christianity that I've ever read over the past 29 years, what gave, it wasn't Josh McDowell, it wasn't, you know, uh, some reformed apologetics guy. The greatest thing that made me believe the gospel was the unified revelation of God through the progression of redemptive history as it unfolds in the Bible written over thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. This I have found to be the greatest argument for the truth of Christianity. It's not a collection of disconnected and contradictory writings, but an unfolding set of promises all linked together, beginning with this promise, the first good news all linked together, finding their culmination and fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So all God's promises find their yes in Jesus. Well, so then, okay, he just dies. Is that, is that good enough for you know, victory? No. What we see is from the Garden of Eden, we move to the Garden of Gethsemane, but then we move further to the garden of the empty tomb. Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 through 15 says, Having been buried us, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through, the, the, through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you know, you used to be sons of Satan, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. But then it says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. What did God say to Satan? You will eat the dust. 
by, so um, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, being Jesus. So Jesus' resurrection, with that, God disarmed the rulers and authorities, those who do the work of Satan, putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. So being united to Jesus by faith, we have been buried. We like we died too with him in baptism. We've been raised to new life with him now, presently. And we've, have, we've been forgiven all our sins and the record that stood against us. The legal demands for God's justice are now nailed to the cross. And we too will be raised from the dead just as Jesus was. One theologian I read said, Jesus Christ's resurrection is the payment on a promise made. It's the payment on a promise made when the world was both very young and suddenly made very old by the foolishness and selfishness of sin. Jesus' saving work is the central theme of the whole Bible. And his resurrection, it's the sign of the fulfillment of that work. So his resurrection is the anticipation of the goal of redemptive history. It's a peak ahead. In the resurrection, we have a picture of the future. Your future, given before its arrival. So, going back to, going from D-Day to V-E Day, and we're in these skirmishes. What do we do if Jesus' resurrection has guaranteed God's victory? Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, I feel like is a really helpful passage for this. Um, and it might be great for you to go over devotionally this week. But first, let me, let me speak to three audiences here. First, to the ignorant of this cosmic battle that's going on. We need to recognize that our great battle is spiritual in nature. Don't think that today is a battle against the clock or a battle against sleepiness. That was me at 7.30. Or that today is just neutral at all. We think that it's about physical problems. And, you know, we all say the struggle is real. Especially my female staff, Savannah. It's her favorite line. But have you ever said that about a spiritual battle? The struggle is real. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But the church, to be God's presence in the world, which is what two rivers is, for us to be God's presence in the world, our greatest threat, is for the devil, the deceiver, to tear us down apart with his lies. So what do you tend to think your great battle is in life? We can't be ignorant. We need to know every day that it's spiritual in nature. Second, to those who are averse to concern about Satan. Ah, Jesus has had victory over Satan. Forget about him, right? Well, you know that there's a spiritual battle, but think Satan can't bruise your heel. Let's call you the proud. 
verse 10 of Ephesians 6, Paul says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Oh, wait. In the strength of His might. Not ours. And so in verse 11, he goes on to say, Put on the whole armor of God. What's the armor of God? His armor. Not our armor. We need all His armor. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So prayer is really our dependence on Him to strengthen us. We don't pray because we think we don't need His might. So if we don't pray, it might be a sign that we believe that Satan can't bruise our heel. How are we proud? I think oftentimes successful people feel like they're in control. And so identity is so built on our success that we don't really ever truly put our hope in Christ. And Satan's lies are entrenched because we haven't utterly failed yet in anything in life. I just had that this week with a student who has never been, she's always had many boys running after her. And for the first time in life, she has this chance that she might be rejected. (laughs) Where do you consider your strength to be? In your intelligence, your gifts, your diligence, maybe in school, in your daytimer? What is it? So that's the, the second group, the proud. The third group is to those who are overly fearful of Satan, who feel too weak. Let me remind you that God has given us in the gospel, the tools we need to win those skirmishes. The belt of truth. The breastplate of righteousness. The shoes of the gospel of peace. The shield of faith. And the helmet of salvation. The gospel itself is our armor. To walk right through Satan's armament. What am I trying to say this morning? In Genesis 3.15, we see that it's really difficult to deny the existence of evil in this world. But it was God's plan from the beginning to restore creation and free it from Satan's evil grips. With God's first good news, his first grace toward fallen mankind, he declared war on Satan and promised a seed from Eve who would crush him. And so God has come through on that promise, allowing his son Jesus to become a man, born of a woman to die for sins and free us from the curse of sin and death. And in Jesus' resurrection, we have the down payment on the restoration of all of creation. And our own forever restoration in our relationship to God. And so until VE Day of Redemption, we have the privilege of battling the cosmic forces of evil, freed by the spirit from slavery to sin and Satan, and we're equipped to defeat him with the weapons and armor of the gospel. What a privilege it is to be able to take part in that.
May that be the story of two rivers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. I can't even begin to cover all that this one verse teaches us. But Lord, I pray that this week you would help us to walk in the victory that Jesus won with his resurrection and be active in fighting Satan and taking every inch for Jesus. May we crown Jesus with many crowns since he is the lamb upon the throne. Lord, may the heavenly anthem drown all music but its own. In Christ's name we pray, amen.